welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 26, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. that we all think we have a pretty good sense of what we should be eating. Five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, whole grains, lean proteins, low-fat dairy. The question is, do any of us actually do it? Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. Or, in other words, she's a food guru. From deciphering food labels to holding major food corporations accountable, Nestle is an expert of the politics of what we eat and why. She spoke last week as part of the Science in the City Girls' Night Out series, and this week we're airing her full lecture. Big news, Science in the City fans! On March 29th, we're bringing you the Shark Lady! That's right! World-renowned ichthyologist Eugenie Clark is going to tell us about her fantastic 60-year career studying deep-sea sharks and tropical fish. And, not to mention, it'll be a month shy of her 88th birthday. Talk about a lifelong adventure seeker. Get your tickets online today at www.nyas.org sharklady. We're at an enormously exciting moment in history in my field, which is the politics of food and nutrition. Here we have the First Lady of the United States announcing that she's going to make childhood obesity one of her causes and has organized this enormous national campaign to try to address it for the first time. So we're getting really high-level public attention for what I think is a really important problem. Uh, My own work is on food systems, and by that I mean everything about food from production to consumption, the relationship between agriculture to food, nutrition, and public health, and the areas of public health that I'm most interested in are obesity and food safety, which may not seem as if they're related, but if you want people to eat healthfully, the food has to be safe. Um, And two of my books have been about the forces that determine what people eat, that's food politics and what to eat, and the other two are about the politics of food safety, and in fact, my book, Safe Food, is coming out in this summer in a new edition that's retitled The Politics of Food Safety. And in general, my work covers what I consider to be the most important problems related to nutrition and health in the world. That is the fact that we have an enormous maldistribution of food resources. On the one hand, we have at least a billion people in the world who don't have enough to eat to get them through the day. And on the other hand, we have another billion people in the world who are so overweight that their risk for chronic disease increases. I think these are important problems worthy of national attention. And consequently, I was quite surprised to read in the December 18th Science Magazine a little blurb about this particular series, Science for the Fair Sex, uh, that ends up with this snarky little comment, I guess girls are interested in science only if you can find a link to food, love, or makeup. 
I have to say I took this personally. And I wrote a uh, rebuttal which they printed in which I said I would argue instead that rigorous scientific thinking thoroughly informs my research of, on the influence of politics on agricultural production and consumption, and you should come to my lecture on February 16th and see for yourself. So this series has not gone unnoticed in the science press. It obviously made Science Magazine, which is the premier science magazine uh, in this country, extremely uncomfortable. Somebody on their staff was very uncomfortable about this, and I think it's interesting to ponder why. But that's a topic for another night. My topic tonight is to talk about the politics of food uh, from my somewhat unusual perspective as someone trained in science and who worked in policy under the Reagan administration in Washington and who taught at a medical school for 10 years and has been at NYU for 20. My starting position for all of this is public confusion about diet and health. The public is demonstrably confused about what to eat. And I think this is really too bad because I don't think you need to be a scientific genius to figure out what it is you're supposed to have for dinner. In fact, it's so simple. I can summarize it in one slide. Eat less, move more, eat fruits and vegetables, don't eat too much junk food, enjoy what you're eating, and please don't eat my book. But if it seems more complicated than this, and those of you who are familiar with Michael Pollan's work will know that as a brilliant writer, he was able to get the same thing down to seven words instead of however many this is. But if it seems more complicated than that, it has to do with how complicated the effects of such advice is on the food industry. And this was beautifully expressed by an executive of Coca-Cola a couple of years ago who explained in an interview to Advertising Age that the Achilles heel of the food industry is the discussion about obesity. It used to be something they didn't have to worry about at all, but now it completely argues against the kinds of products that they're producing. And for all of these companies making junk foods of one kind or another, it's just an enormous issue that they have to deal with every day. And of course, the reason um, that they have to deal with it, and it's so difficult for them, is that if you're going to advise people to eat less, it's not very good for business, and they notice it. Now, the reason that this is not a trivial problem has to do with rates, rising rates of obesity. And starting in the early 1980s, rates of obesity, which had been pretty constant for years, began to rise quite precipitously. And this is not just a cosmetic problem. Obesity raises the risk for a bunch of diseases, most prominently type 2 diabetes, which is still in a very low percentage of the population. It's not that everyone who is overweight gets type 2 diabetes diabetes. It's just that if you have type 2 diabetes, the probability that you're overweight is extremely high. And rates are rising in exactly in parallel with rising rates of obesity. Now, if you want to do something about obesity, there are really two approaches to dealing with it, or for that matter, practically any other nutrition problem. One is the personal responsibility approach. 
the personal responsibility approach looks at uh, doing something about obesity as an individual problem. And this was beautifully expressed in this offensive cover by The Economist a few years ago uh, with a quotation that I love to quote, if people want to eat their way to grossness in an early grave, let them if you're fat, it's your fault. Here, if you're a public health person and you want to help people maintain a healthier weight, your job is to teach individuals to eat more healthfully, and if you do, they'll eat more healthfully, right? Any public health people here who ever tried that? It doesn't work too well. And the reason it doesn't work too well is because we live in what the New York Times referred to as a gorge-yourself environment, an environment in which there's too much food, too many choices, and far too much eating. And here, if you want to do something to help people eat more healthfully, you have to change society, which is a much, much more difficult thing to contemplate. And of course, as scientists, we want to ask the important question, what is it about society that needs to be changed? And to answer that question, I find it useful to begin to look at the statistics on rising rates of obesity and to see once again that oh, rates of obesity began to rise in the early 1980s. So the obvious question then is, what happened in the early 1980s that made people either eat more, uh, move less, or do both? And I'm not going to say much about the moving less because the data on it aren't very good, but there's plenty of evidence that people are eating more. So let's ask the reframe the question, what is it that happened in 1980, in the early 1980s, that made people start to eat more than they had in the past? Let's blame women. Girls night out, let's blame women. So the first reason that's always given is that women went back into the workforce all your fault. And indeed, between 1960 and 2008, the percentage of women in the workforce went from 37% to nearly 60%. But if you look at this other curve, you can see that in 1980, an awful lot of women had already gone into the workforce, and the percentage, be the, that the percentage increase from 1980 to 2000 wasn't all that much. You can blame women for some of this, but I don't think it's a complete explanation, and I don't even think it's the main one. I want to look at something that seems much more remote from women in the workforce, and that has to do with agricultural policy. Because our country's agricultural policy changed in the 1970s from a policy that paid farmers not to grow food to a policy that paid farmers to grow as much food as they possibly could. And by the early 1980s, we had mountains of corn in a sea of farm subsidies. And that had several effects. One was supply and demand. The price of food went down. The other was that the number of calories in the food supply went up. And if you look at this slide, this diagram, which goes from 1910 to the year 2000, you can see in that pink or orange band across the middle that the number of calories available in the food supply from 1910 to 1980 was roughly 3,200 per person per day, plus or minus a couple of hundred. Starting in the early 1980s, that number started to go up so that there are now approximately 4,000 calories of 
of food available in the United States for every man, woman, and little tiny baby in the country, roughly twice average need. Now that 4,000 figure represents food produced in the United States, less exports, plus import. So it's the net amount of calories that are available. And even if a lot of those calories are wasted, as the Department of Agriculture maintains, it's still a lot more food than anybody needs or could possibly want and it's an increase of 800 calories a day from the early 1900. People aren't eating that much. It's what's available, not being eaten, but it's still a big increase. There's yet another reason that I think is responsible for the increasing rates of obesity. What all those calories in the food supply did was to make the food industry extremely competitive, But there was another factor that hit the food industry in the early 1980s, and that was the beginning of what is called the shareholder value movement, which which was a movement that was kicked off by Jack Welch, who was then the head of General Electric. Um, And he made a speech in 1981 that said, enough of this blue-chip stock stuff where you buy stocks and you get long-term, slow returns on investment. We shareholders and stockholders, we want higher returns on investment, and we want them right now. And the shareholder value movement changed the way Wall Street evaluated corporations. It was no longer enough for corporations to make slow, steady profits over a very long period of time. Companies had to start reporting not only profits, but growth to Wall Street every 90 days. And we see the result of that in the financial crises in Wall Street now um, and in many other ways in which this very bad, these very bad policies have played out. But the result for food companies was that they had to sell more food, not less, in order to demonstrate growth to Wall Street every 90 days. And in doing that, food companies changed society in ways that nobody noticed because it happened, it seemed to happen quite gradually. And in the next several slides, I want to show you the ways in which society changed. For one thing, food was cheap because there was so much of it, so we ate out more. A food outside the home has more calories in it than food inside the home. And in the next several slides, every time you see an exclamation point, that's my shorthand. For this will encourage you to eat more calories than you would if you were cooking at home. The obvious one is larger portions. Uh, This is my former doctoral student, now Dr. Lisa Young. At her thesis defense, she did her doctoral dissertation measuring the size of portions in the food supply. And the white cup on the left is an eight-ounce Department of Agriculture standard serving size for a soft drink. It holds 100 calories. If it doesn't have too much ice in it, you can't even get one of those anymore. Uh, The double gulp on the right, she bought at the Angelica Movie Theater. If it doesn't have too much ice, it holds 64 ounces and 800 calories. Eight times 100 is 800? You don't have to be a mathematical genius to figure that out. If I had one thing that I could teach, it would be that larger portions have more calories. 
I swear to you, it's not intuitively obvious. In fact, it's been proven that it's not intuitively obvious by Brian Wansink, who's a professor at Cornell, um, who does very clever experiments on societal environmental cues that encourage people to eat more. In this particular experiment, this is his famous Super Bowl experiment, in which he invited his own students, who, believe me, should have known better, to come to his house and watch the Super bowl and he took half of them and put them in one room with four quart bowls of popcorn and the other half in another room with two quart bowls of popcorn and at the end of the super bowl he counted up how much popcorn they had eaten and lo and behold his students who had four quart bowls ate twice as much popcorn almost twice as much as those that had two quart bowls and when he asked them how many calories they had eaten they underestimated the number of calories they were eaten to a much much greater extent from the four quart bowls than from the two quart bowls and these were his own students who were trained to know that larger portions encourage people to eat more calories. Everybody eats more calories if they're eating larger portions. And larger portions have more calories, a lot more. Ubiquity is another one I like to ask the question, when did it become okay to eat in bookstores? Uh, When I first came to NYU, there were signs all over the library saying, if you eat here, you're you're going to be expelled so quickly that you won't even know what hit you, and no, we're not refunding your tuition. And now there are two cafes in the library. That's an eat more strategy. Proximity is another one, and one of the reasons why nutrition advocates like me are so concerned about vending machines in schools, and I was so happy to hear that Michelle Obama is uh, concerned about vending machines in schools, is that the more vending machines that are available, the more product will be sold from them. And so if you're a soft drink seller, your objective is to get as many vending machines in schools as possible. If you're a nutrition advocate, your goal is to get those vending machines out of the schools as quickly as possible. And the last is low prices. It's hard to argue against low prices because we have a lot of poor people in this country who really need to eat better. But I like to use this as an example. If you go to McDonald's with $5 or approximately $5, you can buy five hamburgers or one salad. There's something wrong with that picture. Why would one salad cost as much as five hamburgers? That has to do with our farm policy, our nutrition policy, and our agricultural policy. And that can be shown most clearly, I think, in the cost of eating fruits and vegetables as compared to the cost of eating beer, butter, or sodas. Uh, The blue lines on the upper part of this show the change in monthly food prices from 1980 to 2009, Um, and you can see that the cost of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables has gone up by about 40%, whereas the cost of beer, butter, and sodas has gone down by 20 to 30%. Uh, That's our agricultural policy at work. 
Given this situation, lots of people have looked at what this means, and in particular, Michelle Simon, who's a lawyer in the San Francisco Bay Area, wrote a book called Appetite for Profit, in which she kind of laid all of these things out and talked about the enormous pressures on food companies these days, not only from advocates like Michelle and me, but also from regulators who are dying to regulate food companies, from lawsuits, from lawyers who are dying to sue them, and most of all from Wall Street, which simply wants them to report profits every 90 days and a growth in profit every 90 days. And food companies have had to respond to this. Um, At first, they did nothing and went through all the stages of death and denial, but then they began to fight back. And I'm not going to say very much about the way they fight back through lobbying, through trying to get exempt from laws, through personal attacks on advocates, blaming inactivity and blaming personal choice. If you want to see some of that in action, you can go on my website where I post all the letters that they write me. But what I do want to talk about is the way that they're changing products. Uh, And in particular, I want to look at three aspects of product changes because these are right smack in the middle of food and nutrition policy today. And I want to look at health claims, functional foods, and the way that companies are self-endorsing the nutritional quality of their products. So let's start with health claims. We didn't used to have health claims on food products. They only came on starting in 1994 when the Nutrition Labeling Act of 1990 went into effect. Before that, the FDA said, if a food product is going to advertise itself as doing something for health, it is acting like a drug, and it's going to be treated like a drug. It's going to have to do clinical trials that prove that multigrain Cheerios uh, will reduce the risk of heart disease. Now, if you give that one moment of thought, you and try to think about what it would be like to design a clinical trial testing multigrain Cheerios, uh, reducing the risk of heart disease, you can imagine that, first of all, nobody would want to fund such a trial, and secondly, it would take a really, really long time And the chances are it wouldn't show anything because this is only one food in a lifetime of eating a lot of different food products. But Congress in 1990 put the nutrition facts label on food products that, you know, the familiar ones that are on food products now. And the food and food companies said, look, if you're going to make us say what's wrong with our products, you have to let us say what's right about our products and what, what's good in them. And Congress agreed and forced the FDA to begin considering health claims that were scientifically substantiated or at least somewhat scientifically substantiated. And the FDA did and was forced to do that. And whenever it denied a claim, the companies sued the FDA. The courts ruled in favor of the companies on the grounds of free speech. And the FDA basically gave up. So the result of that is that the supermarket is filled with products that have all different kinds of health claims on them. And here's a cereal. I love cereal boxes because if you want to know, I collect them. Because if you want to know what is going 
on with food marketing. You go to the cereal aisle first because they change their products, their boxes very often, and you can see what they're doing. Anyway, this product has six different kinds of health claims on it. In the upper right-hand corner, it has guideline daily amounts that are the same kinds of things that are being used in Europe right now that tell you how nutritious it is. This cereal is going to make you smart. It's going to make your heart healthy. It has zero grams of trans fat. I know you'll be relieved to hear that. It will lower both your blood pressure and cholesterol, and it has an endorsement from the American Heart Association, even though sugars appear nine times in the ingredient list. The American Heart Association doesn't care about sugars. It only cares about fat, saturated fat and cholesterol. So that's health claims. They're health claims on everything. To get into the next one, one of the things that companies want to do is to add nutrients to the foods that they are producing because they can sell them as being particularly nutritious. And this is what Michael Pollan, in his book, In Defense of Food, called nutritionism. By nutritionism, he meant looking at the value of food strictly in terms of its nutrient content. I like to think of nutritionism as a marketing tool for selling foods on the basis of selling processed foods on the basis of their nutritional value. And I guess vitamin water is the best example of that. These are, this is considered a functional food. A functional food is a food that has something added to it nutritionally above and beyond what would be in the natural food itself. Well, vitamin water is just water with sugar and vitamins added, and it's a classic example of a functional food. In 2008, I began to see omega-3 fatty acids in absolutely everything. They were added to milk. They were added to peanut butter. They were added to mayonnaise. They even were added to cookies. But omega-3s are so 2008. In 2009, it was calcium and vitamin D. Vitamin D is the hot nutrient of the year, and you begin to see. And notice the chocolate Lucky Charms. That's your best source of vitamin D. You're better out outside even on a day like this, I think. Now, I haven't said any, that was a product design aimed at kids, and you know it's a product aimed at kids because it's got a cartoon on it. It's a dead giveaway. And in uh, 2005, the Institute of Medicine did a major research report on food marketing to children in which they reviewed 123 studies on food marketing to children, and they examined the research enterprise that is um, devoted to teaching food companies how to sell foods directly to children. You might not think that such an enterprise exists, but it does. Um, It looked at the methods that companies use to market to children, the amount of money that they spend on it, the sales that that come as a result, and the effects that food marketing has on children's requests for food and on their health, and lo and behold, marketing works really well on kids. That's why they do it. Now, the amount of money that's spent on marketing to children is hard to determine, and there are lots of arguments about it, but every now and then, advertising age will reveal a few figures. And in 2009, um, there was an article in Advertising Age that said that Kellogg spends $66 million a year just on media advertising for Frosted Flakes, $19 million on Pop-Tarts, and a mere $10.7 million on Fruit Loops. I don't think that 
Michelle Obama's anti-childhood obesity campaign has anywhere near that kind of money behind it. Uh, I may be wrong about it, but these are just three products. Every product marketed to children has a budget something like that. It's hard to compete with it. There are three reasons why companies would want to spend that kind of money on marketing to children. The first is brand loyalty. The idea is that if you get, your, get a child hooked on Coca-Cola early in life, that child will always prefer Coke to Pepsi, even though blind tastings. Nobody can tell them apart in blind tastings. The second is the pester factor. That's what it's called. The object is to get children to pester their parents to buy foods. And if you've got a two-year-old and take a two-year-old to a grocery, you watch it in action. They go right to the products with cartoons. But the third reason is the one that really troubles me. This would just be marketing. But the third reason is the one that I think is really worth attention, and that's what I call kids' food or kids' cuisine. The object is to make children think that they're supposed to eat their own foods. They're supposed to eat foods designed just for them, not the boring foods that their parents eat, but things that come in boxes, things that come in packages. The packages have cartoons on them, things that are fun in funny colors and unidentified food objects and so forth. And I think this is so undermining of parental authority around food issues that it's reason enough to be really concerned about food marketing. And I was very disappointed that Michelle Obama didn't say anything about food marketing. I'm hoping that that was for reasons of politics and that behind the scene, they're really trying to get companies to lay off. The third strategy for selling food products is uh, to self-endorse your product. And this is a brilliant strategy. You set up your own nutrition criteria for your own line of products. You apply those criteria to your own products. And guess what? Lots of your products qualify. What a coincidence. Pepsi-Cola did this first with its snack foods. I picked these up in Canada. I thought they were really good examples of the, um, the healthier-for-you food options. Um, if you talk to food industry executives about this and you say, you know, you're advertising junk foods as health foods, they say, no, we're not. We're just trying to help the public pick healthier options. Um, and yes, that's maybe what they're trying to do, but it sure looks like a health food to me. All the companies, the big companies did it. Kraft did it. This is an excellent source of calcium. This is a pepperoni-flavored sausage pizza that no nutritionist would ever recommend. It has a full ounce of sugars and meets 25% of the day's upper limit of saturated fat and sodium for adults, let alone small children. Okay, those were in there, and Hannaford, then you ask the question, well, what if a nutritionist set up real criteria? What would happen? And that experiment, amazingly, was done by Hannaford Supermarkets, which hired a group of nutritionists, uh, independent nutritionists, to set up criteria for evaluating food products. And to their horror, when they applied those criteria to 27,000 food products in Hannaford supermarkets, only 20, oh, they were going to give one, two, or three stars to the products, depending on how nutritious they were or how well they met the criteria, only 23% qualified even for one star. And of that 23%, 80% were fruits and vegetables in the produce section. 
They weren't food products. So if you apply real nutrition criteria to food products, very few of them will qualify. Uh, so all in all, we have a situation in which it looks like health professionals, the food industry, and the government are somehow collaborating in creating a food environment that encourages people to eat more, not less. Now, I would be depressed about that if I didn't think we were making a lot of sort of progress fighting back. And I want to talk a little bit about front-of-package labeling, because this is a really important issue that the FDA is working on right now. And the front-of-package labeling issue uh, started in the United Kingdom, where the United Kingdom um, started putting these traffic light signals on food products, or said they were going to. And the idea was that if it had a green dot, it would be healthy. If it was had a yellow dot, it would be okay. And if it had a red dot, it would be a less helpful choice. And the research has shown that consumers understand this kind of labeling really well, and they don't buy the products with red dots on them. Okay, keep that in mind. You're a food company. Do you want a red dot on your products? No. Are your products going to qualify for red dots? Probably. So, the food industry got together with a bunch of health partners and industry partners who kicked in a whole bunch of money to uh, do what is a keystone process where they met for a couple of years uh, to develop criteria that would be applied to food products across the board so that all these eight companies would get together to do this. And the American Society of Nutrition, which is a research nutrition society that I am embarrassed to say that I belong to, um, competed to manage this program. And the criteria that they set up were that a product could have no more than 10% of calories of saturated fat, 25% of calories from added sugars, that seemed kind of high, 480 milligrams per serving of sodium, that seemed kind of high, that's a gram of salt, and then one key nutrient. And I was opposed to this from the very beginning. I'm opposed to all kinds of claims on food packages, but I'm very extreme. I know that. But this one I thought was really awful, and I thought it was terrible that these nutrition and the Heart Association, the Diabetes Association, and all these health groups were involved in this. It seemed like a really bad idea to me that they would be endorsing food products. In August last summer, the FDA and the USDA jointly wrote the Smart Choices program that they would be concerned if any of the labeling systems had the effect of encouraging consumers to choose highly processed foods, meaning junk foods, instead of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. So that was, this was a shot across the bow from the new Obama administration, and they had a right to be worried. And one day late in August, um, I had lunch with a reporter for the New York Times, and I was telling him about this. He said, let's go to a supermarket. And so he went to a supermarket in Midtown, and he's new at the Times, and he's new writing about the food business. And I said, let's start with the cereal aisle, because that's where the action is. And we walked into the cereal aisle, and he went right over to Fruit Loops, picked it up, and said, is this what you were talking about? Fruit Loops is 44% of calories from sugar. Sugar is the first ingredient in this cereal. Well, this is ludicrous. Even though the criteria was 25% of calories from sugar, that would exclude all kids' breakfast cereals, so they made an exception for breakfast cereals. Now, I wrote about it in my blog, 
and showed the picture of this particular Fruit Loops box, which I bought on August 24th. And on September 5th, um, you know, a week or so later, I got a letter from Kellogg saying, you didn't put up the right box. We've added five, three grams of fiber per serving to our cereals, and you were, were really being very unfair. So I just bought that box. And they said, but this is the one we have now. And so I thought that raises an important philosophical question. Is a better-for-you processed food a good choice? I don't think so. In any case, uh, Willie Newman, the Times reporter, had a field day with this, and he managed to get one of the people who was involved with the program to say uh, that, oh, well, it was better than a donut. And then the economist, uh, late in September, had a, this lovely picture of this lovely child, and its caption was, it's practically spinach. With this kind of ridicule got the attention of the Connecticut Attorney General who said these so-called smart choices seem nutritionally suspect and the label is potentially misleading. The label adorns sugar-laden cereals appealing to children, uh, but they're you know, better choices. And as a result of all of this unfavorable publicity, the program was suspended, causing the Connecticut Attorney General to chortle that they realized that the logo would only mislead and make consumers make more confused, and we're going to give the same kind of attention to other food products. And in fact, he was kind of ahead of his time because almost instantly that, because that week, the San Francisco city attorney um, went off after another package that I bought on that same supermarket trip with the New York Times reporter. I went, you know, we were in the Syria. I said, oh, boy, look at this. Cocoa Krispies is going to help kids prevent swine flu. Um, <laughs> And the city and county of San Francisco took, a, took off after that. In this case, USA Today had a field day with the immunity claim in which they got people saying, this is really ridiculous. I mean, we're right in the middle of a swine flu epidemic and people are going to be buying Cocoa Krispies and Kellogg's pulled the immunity claim from their Rice Krispie cereal. So if you see a box like this still in the supermarket, buy it. It's a collector's item. No. <laughs> so, um, and then my last qu question on that from that same shopping trip was, who's going to do something about Juicy Juice? Uh, this is a Nestle product, no relation. Um, Juicy Juice has uh, omega-3s added for brain development and a bunch of nutrients added, and that's also an immunity claim. And here the FDA took after them, uh, largely on technical grounds, but I think this one's going to go away too. So our federal agencies, our city and state agencies are on the case, and the FDA has now embarked on a great program to take a look at what's going on in the front of, the, of package labels, and uh, they've hired, a, they've recruited a committee at the Institute of Medicine to take a look at the whole thing, but they're clearly leaning in the direction of traffic lights. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out.
Well, I say all of this because we have leadership in the White House and we have decent leadership at the Department of Agriculture and FDA for the first time in a long time. And I think we're in the middle of a social movement around food in my own teaching at NYU. I teach courses in um, food sociology and in food ethics, and I'm talking about food as a social movement all the time. We have the slow food revolution, the organic revolution, the locavore movement, uh, and the locavore movement with these guys who are, have a, grow food on the back of a pickup truck in Red Hook. Uh, and there's really a lot going on. A lot of it is fueled by, I think, Eric Schlosser's work writing Fast Food Nation, Michael Pollan's work, of course, and the work of Alice Waters, who has um, said from the beginning that if you want people to eat well, they need to know where their food comes from. And I love showing that, because that's me in the bottom picture. Um, um, Michael Pollan's letter to the farmer-in-chief, written before Obama took office, had three recommendations in it. One was to resolarize the American farm, meaning try to get a more sustainable energy into growing food, re-regionalize the food system so that we're not importing apples from New Zealand when we have plenty of local apples around here, and rebuilding Americans' food culture so that people understand that eating real, real food is likely to be healthier for them than eating food products. Um, I think climate change is driving a lot of what's going on now. And there are many, many estimations of the agriculture is responsible for probably 20% of greenhouse gases. And there are lots of estimations of what the carbon footprint is of one or another food. I don't want to get into these uh, at all because I have no idea whether the assumptions are right. I don't know how to evaluate this um, other than it's pretty clear that a heavily processed food is going to... Um, take up more climate-changing resources than one that you grow in your backyard or on your New York terrace. I'm also impressed by the enormous number of films uh, that have come out on food system issues. Food Inc. has been nominated for an Academy Award, um, and many of these are really worth watching. These are This is my... Uh, estimation of what the better ones are. And they're coming into my office. I get a new one almost every day. Lots of people are making movies about these, uh, about food issues. And the more people who see them, the more people join the movement. Um, and it's national and extremely mainstream if Time magazine writes about local food and the real cost of cheap food, um, then you know that this has gotten into public consciousness and the nation, and that's uh, on the more left side of the political spectrum, the nation talks about how what food issues are really about is how to grow democracy. And I would completely agree with that. I think the food movement is a mo movement of the people by the people for the people, very much grassroots bottom-up, and the best of American democracy. I want to say just a word about Truck Farm, because I just love it. Um, they're, they're making a movie. These are the guys who made King Corn, which is one of the more delightful of the food movies. And over the summer, they grew food on the back of their pickup truck, and they sold shares in community-supported agriculture out of the back of their truck, and I bought one for $20. I thought it was a bargain. And then they made a movie of it. I'm in episode two. It's on YouTube. 
It's really cute. Everybody's growing food. And even NYU, which is not what you would call an urban agricultural environment, we have a gardener who over the summer planted vegetables in street planters. He's got 83 street planters under his control. And this summer he had vegetables growing in them. And I live around the corner from these planters. And I picked a few. (laughs) It was kind of fun. That's all on the production side. On the consumption side, there's a healthy food movement that is talking about that what a healthy food is. And uh, th- this particular group in Oakland interviewed a bunch of nutritionists and asked them what they thought a healthy, how they would define a healthful food. And the answers were that it was something that was minimally processed, contained natural, not added nutrients, no artificial additives, no hormones or antibiotics, sustainably produced production values, fair to the workers who are producing the food, and accessible and affordable to everybody. And I think this is an excellent definition that encompasses a large number of issues that are very important to me personally and to a lot of other people. We live in New York City, which has an activist health department that looked around at the health problems in New York City and said, what can we as a health department actually do to try to make it easier for New Yorkers to eat more healthfully? And so we have calorie labeling in fast food places in New York for people who look at the calories, who care about the calories. It's pretty revelatory um, and setting a national example. They also had a campaign for drinking less sodas. Sodas are the number one priority for helping people reduce their calorie intake because the body doesn't seem to compute liquid sugar in the same way that it computes uh, calories coming in from food. And there's now a whole effort to try to encourage people to drink less sodas or drink fewer sodas. Um, I've spoken at a number of meetings where pediatricians who work with obese children tell me that it is not unusual in their practices uh, to have children who report drinking 1,000 to 2,000 calories a day from sodas alone. So it's a good place to slow down. There's now increasing amount of research that indicates that children who drink a lot of sodas are fatter, take in more calories, and have worse diets than people who don't. The amount of sugar that people are taking in is really quite a lot. And while sugar doesn't have a lot of calories, it's four calories per gram, uh, when, when it's in sodas where you've got many, many, many grams, it really adds up. The city department is also very concerned about access to food uh, for people who don't have access, and it has a number of initiatives to bring fresh fruits and vegetables into low-income areas, areas that now have their own name. They're called food deserts. So the city is doing that also. And then, of course, there's what's going on in schools. And this is really a national movement with a large literature behind it. I've shown there's a new Janet Poppendick, who's a sociologist at Hunter, has a new book out. And it's not just about Alice Waters uh, who, and her edible schoolyard in Berkeley. It's also at PS56 in Bedford-Stuyvesant, a school that I went to and visited. And it was a cafeteria where you walk in and the smell of food is absolutely delicious. And the kids are eating it and everybody is, um, and there's very little plate waste. And, well, and it's just the same food that's in all of the city schools. Um, and when I asked the 
the school food service director who was on site there, how did this happen? She said, oh, everybody in this school really cares. And that's what Michelle Obama's campaign is really about, is trying to get a lot more people caring. So uh, I think where we are on this is um, we're at a stage where we need to do both personal responsibility and societal responsibility. We have to do our own food choices and vote with our own forks and at the same time try to promote policies that will promote healthier eating. And we have this incredibly inspiring White House where the First Lady has taken on food as her personal issue. Um, I find this very inspiring and I think we're here in a new era in American food politics. And I'll just end by saying that for those of us who are working on food issues and find that the science community doesn't always take our work as seriously as we would like to. I just want you to know that I'm braced because my next book is not only about food, but it's about pet food. Um, And I think it's a serious book, and I hope other people will too when it comes out in May. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening this week. Check out this season's Girls' Night Out series online at www.nias.org slash girlsnightout. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of our Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out series and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to donate to Science in the City today, Log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. And as always, we'd love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.